Welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show about protecting people, property, and most importantly, protecting your ass. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and I'd like you to join me for a fast-paced and often fiery discussion about security issues with my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Claimant. Whether we're piercing the veil of security, talking your duty of care, or raving about the latest technology, we'll share our thoughts on the issues, the trends that are impacting security today and into the future. So grab a coffee and join us for our latest podcast, and don't forget to like and follow us on our sponsor's website, brianclayman.com. And now let's talk about protecting your assets. Hello and welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show where we talk about protecting your assets. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano Cedrodi. With me is Brian the Angry Man Clayman, and welcome to episode, I believe it's 16 now, Brian. It's, uh, it's been going on for a few months. Um, wow. But yeah, no kidding. It's like a marriage. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's improving. The feedback's great. And so I'm excited about uh, today's topic. Uh, we're going to be just the two of us. Uh, we've had guests recently, which has all gone well. But uh, I like to do the uh, the more intimate, if you will, one-on-one sessions as well, where we can let loose a little more. Um, and today's topic should be an interesting one because we're going to talk about the transition point uh, between security and the law enforcement uh, people that uh, we interact with on a day-to-day basis when we're when we're running security operations. So specifically, you know, where where does security's responsibility start and end with the with the client, the private sector? And uh, where does the police take over, um, which has always been a bone of contention with, uh, in my experience anyway, with uh, my previous lives. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you to say hello, uh, talk about what's keeping you up or what's been in the news the last, the last few days, and then we'll kick it off. Well, you know, as much as I try to get away from either U.S. politics or COVID, it keeps drawing me back in because each time we do another podcast, Something crazy has occurred, which just uh, I've got to talk to, I suspect. And it's COVID this time. I mean, there's a lot to talk about south of the not, border as well with the impeachment trial. But yeah. not again. You're right. But the, the COVID, uh, I want to talk about the vaccine kerfuffle. And it, it's really disheartening. I read something uh, just uh, this morning. In, in Forbes, which said that uh, about two, three weeks ago, Canada was in the top four in the world for vaccine rollout, or I think it was uh, three, four weeks ago. And we find ourselves now, according to the Forbes vaccine tracker, number 38 in the yeah. world. That's and we're, we're like in the area of undeveloped, you know, unsophisticated countries, which is really disappointing. Uh, there's been a complete failure of leadership and oversight and transparency. And I put that at the feet of the prime minister and the federal government. And what's interesting is recently what they're trying to do is they're trying to change the narrative. And they're just the other day talking about infrastructure uh, programs of billions of dollars going to transit across the country just to get vaccines off of the news cycle. And, you know, one can only think if they screwed up vaccine rollout or vaccine procurement as poorly as they did, what are the chances that they're going to get infrastructure right? I mean, these are just words that the prime minister says. He's really good at a couple of things, at making grandiose uh, speeches, apologizing, and then apologizing. The guy skates like I've never seen before. 
And I've said this before, and I'll say this again. The only difference between Donald Trump and Justin Trudeau is that one, I think, is a nice human being. The other is despicable. But we're talking about police security handoffs or the continuum, as I like to call it. Well, these guys are on a continuum. They're at opposite ends, polar opposite ends, but their management style, their self-entitlement uh, style is similar. So that's you my know, rant. I, I find it interesting that you didn't specifically highlight which one was despicable and which one was a nice guy. <laughs> because I think, depending on who you're talking to, that's probably arguable as to who is which as well. And uh, yeah, the the COVID vaccine. You know what? I'm not surprised. And I gotta say, I've always I've always said, and I've always believed that we've only seen the the start of the shit show, so to speak. Now that COVID's out there, the real business starts about the money and who gets the money and the vaccine, because that's what it comes down to. And if you look at what's happened in Europe, uh, I was reading this morning that the British were trying to, well, actually the British did, not tried, they did secure uh, vaccine ship shipments outside of the realm of the European Union. And now the European Union is looking pretty crappy in front of their members. And what do they do? They turn around and they try to instill Brexit parameters, uh, harden the borders with Ireland, basically make it as difficult as they can to hurt Britain for making them look bad. Um, and they've since backtracked on some of those measures. But it just goes to show you that it's it all comes down to money, man. It's not about helping your fellow man. And Canada's been accused of cutting in front of the line and in front of the poor nations and all this kind of stuff. It's just going to get uglier. We've just started down this road, and it's going to get a lot uglier before things get better. That's that's it, my, my thoughts on that. It, it is pretty sad when you you know read in the paper that the Prime Minister of India had to call the Prime Minister of Canada and say, hey, we'll help you out, buddy. We'll send you some surplus. We'll send it your way. Like, how did it get to this? Yeah. And, uh, oh, God, this was a good one. I forgot. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, the uh, vaccine situation is uh, a problem. And uh, I think, you know, listen, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, I was just reading today that uh, the Prime Minister is claiming that uh, the supply is going to be reestablished a little bit sooner than later. Yeah, this is what I was going to say. <laughs> Mr. Fancy Socks, our Prime Minister, when he crucified uh, Jane Philpott and Jody, uh, what was her name, the Minister of Justice in the last government, the two oh, women geez. that they kicked out of caucus, it's like so long ago we yeah. forget. Yep. But it's funny, he said that he, as Prime Minister, is committed to helping Canadian jobs. And SNC-Lavalin is a Canadian company, Quebec company, yeah. and I will do what I need to do to help Canadian jobs. Interesting came out today, I was reading in the Globe Mail, it's, a, it's an emerging story, that there's a Canadian biotech firm out of Alberta that has uh, approached the government months ago to yeah. build a domestic supply, but might it be because you were out of Alberta? that we weren't interested, but our Prime Minister will do anything to protect Canadian jobs. And I may have got this wrong. I thought I heard just today that they've reopened or they've reestablished an office in Saskatchewan, hoping that because it's not Alberta, they may have a better chance of doing work right. with the federal government. Like, this is just disgusting. It is disgusting. And, you know, I'm not saying, I don't know if it's true or not, 
I don't know if the Prime Minister has a bias or not, although I suspect he does. But uh, the optics of his actions in the last yeah. four years is pretty despicable. Yep. You know, you want Alberta to put away, get out of the energy production field. Okay, I get that. Then encourage them and work with them to find other industry sources, such as a high-tech uh, pharma. And nothing. Oh, it, you don't see anything. So just you know, gra- well, you just see grandiose gestures, uh, empty speeches. Uh, it's almost like you know he's he's acting. Oh, oh wait, that's right. He, he's got a degree in that, so he is acting, and that's the problem. He thinks it's a stage for him. It's a show, and it's costing Canadians lives, like literally lives. And you know, the sad thing is, guys like him. That that sort of uh, when I say guys like him, I mean from the socioeconomic part of the society that he comes from those guys don't want for anything they they're able to pay their bills they're able yeah. to eat well they're able to live well they live in a parallel universe to the rest of us okay and i'm not saying woe is me i mean I, you know i'm blessed and i think you're blessed and we're solid mm-hmm. middle class and everything like that but guys like trump guys like trudeau you know he wears his heart on his chest at least he wants you to believe that but then the actions he does you know, I'm going to change, we should change his name to Prime Minister Oprah. You get a billion dollars, and you get a billion dollars, and you get a billion dollars. I mean, who and how does this get paid for? Your kids, kids, kids. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the Montreal Olympics when uh, Mary Jean de Rappel said, the Olympics, I uh, uh, the chances of us not paying this debt down in, in, in the near term is like a man having a baby. Well, guess what? Men in Quebec have babies because it took them 40 years to pay, <laughs> to pay for it the off. Stadium. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, now that we've warmed you up and you're a little angry as you should be, let's let's go into the topic at hand because I'm sure you've got some strong feelings on this. I know I I've had many battles with uh, with my former bosses and uh, just clients in general who sort of have a, a naive view of the world where they think. You know, you call 911 and the police are going to show up and they're going to take care of business for you. And the reality just isn't that. We heard that from McCormick on the last uh, last podcast. The resources are there um, and they've got more important things to deal with. Unless you're unless you're ground zero, you have to be able to function on your own for whatever extended period of time until things settle down. And I just don't think most people have that understanding. They think that it's like TV. You pick up the phone and. The police are just waiting there. They're they're having coffees and donuts and, and waiting for your call. So let's get into that discussion today. Security, you know, we're at the pointy end of the stick. Our guys are charged with dealing with issues at the at the property, at the site. Um, and a good example, this is the Trespass to Property Act. Um, you know, they get in there. They have authority up to a certain level to do something. But at some time, at, at some point, that authority isn't enough to deal with the situation. And they might have to call police. Where is that transition point? How do you see ownership of those issues, uh, and who takes responsibility for what? Well, you know, I call that the security slash police continuum. Uh, I want to start off by saying security is not policing, and policing is not security. And I guess the best example I can give is that policing, also known as law enforcement, is about enforcing statutes. It's really... The primary role is one of enforcement, and protection is secondary, perhaps. But it's really about enforcing regulations. It's an enforcement entity, whereas 
security is not an enforcement entity. Its primary focus is protection, protection of assets, protection of people. Police are about enforcement of regulations and, uh, and laws and legislation. The continuum occurs that there is an overlap, and that's often blurred. But as Dave McCormick said, Superintendent McCormick said on our last podcast, is that security, building security especially, are really the real true first responders because they're typically the first ones on site for the crime that occurs at the property they're protecting or the trespass or the medical incident. I think what happens is, though, because of a lack of training and understanding on both constituent security and policing, you got many security people think they're policemen, and many policemen overstep their boundaries and their authorities. So uh, I think it's important we have some clear definitions of what's what. You know, an example of security is protecting an asset. Let's say it's a commercial office tower. Well, they're protecting that asset. They're protecting the people in that asset. They're not enforcing the homicide laws and the fraud laws or things like that. But there is a time where they may have to get involved. So, for example, if a crime occurs on the property, they have to be trained and, and prepared to respond to that crime, to stabilize the situation so if things are being damaged, evidence being tampered with, people are injured, stabilize that and hand it over or hand it off to the police when they arrive. And that's really, I think, where a lot of programs fail. And that's where you see the YouTube videos of uh, security officers, officers overstepping their authorities. Conversely, I, I have firsthand knowledge of police coming into buildings and lecturing our security mm-hmm. guards well, why didn't you arrest this guy? Or why didn't you stop this guy without any appreciation or understanding that unlike a police officer, the guards do not operate with the same legal authority. And had they done it, they would have committed an offense, which not only would have been problematic for the guards themselves, but problematic for the security company and the property management companies that employ that security guard. That's a very good uh, point. I I remember some incidents that that was exactly the issue where our guards they did what they thought was right, what they had the authority to do. And then you have some cop show up. And, I, you know, we're both former cops, certainly not bashing the police, but they've got their issues too. And there's too often a presumption that just because you carry a badge, you know what you're doing. And believe me, there's a lot of cops out there who don't have a freaking clue what they're doing. And yet, because they carry a badge, they're allowed to, to get away with stuff that guards simply aren't, aren't, aren't allowed to, right? They don't have that, that sway, that wiggle room, if you will. To, to be able to use discretion. They're under the microscope all the time from everybody, tenants, employees, their managers, and so on. Police, on the other hand, they have a little bit of, of, of freedom. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes guards get pushed aside or discounted because they, you know, the presumption is from the police that they're not as smart, they're not as educated, and there's a lot of things that play into that. But I, I think it convolutes the transition the continuum that you were talking about, because if you don't have confidence that the people who are on that continuum are doing the right job and are trained to do the right job, then there's opportunities along that continuum for it to stop, to be diverted, for it to fall apart. And that's why we've talked so many times in the past about the importance of partnerships. And we certainly talked uh, about partnerships with Dave McCormick on our last session. But the, the continuum works both ways, you know. There's the point of handoff of security to police, but also police to security. And I'll give you an example. We had talked off air about this. Uh, when it came to active attacker situations, a very well-known large service started doing lectures 
and they were talking to commercial real estate tenants about what to expect in an active attacker situation. Yep. And that's an example of what I mean, not understanding the point of handoff or the continuum, okay? I think this was an opportunity for police and security to work together. This wasn't an enforcement thing. It wasn't enforcing any law. Clearly, you know, people are interested to know what it might look like and what uh, to expect from the police. But this really was a protection thing that should have been handled by security as a primary and police as a secondary. But they did the presentation, and as a result, it really didn't resonate meaningfully with the uh, target audience. They wanted to understand what would happen in the building, not what will the police service do if they're coming to an active yeah. attack or scene, but what can we expect in the building? And that was a missed opportunity. Listen, it was very interesting. It's like watching CNN or a documentary, but it wasn't. It didn't accomplish its goal. So that continuum I talk of works both ways. It works when do when does security hand off to the police, and how do they hand off? And conversely, how do police hand off to security? You know, uh, well, I'll say this for later on in the uh, podcast. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great that's another good example because I, I know what you're talking about and and I've experienced that so many times and it's frustrating because again the presumption is well if the police are are delivering the the, the training or bringing the information it automatically applies to you know your your business that's not the case there's a distinct difference as you pointed out between law enforcement and security security is there to protect and in the case of active attacker, when they show up to tell you about what they're going to do in an active attacker situation, that does nothing for my clients. It does nothing for my, my tenants. It does nothing for my security guards. And I've always tried to push the idea that once they're in the building, it's already too late, right? You have to rely on the police for that response. But there's so much more that we can be telling our guards, our tenants, our clients on what they can do before they achieve that point of no return to prevent it from happening in the first place. And this is where it gets lost along that continuum because, well, it's a security guard. What the hell do they know? I can tell you, they probably know a hell of a lot more than those officers who've never been in your freaking building. Okay, yeah. those guards know the building. They know the clientele. They, knew, they know what's normal. They know what's suspicious. And they can be doing a lot of things focusing on training on the front end of an active attacker. How do you figure out behavior recognition? What constitutes suspicious activity? How do you engage people who don't belong there or activity that doesn't belong? That's where the focus should be on the client end who's worried about security protecting their assets, not worried about what the police are going to do when they get there. Because at that point, police take over and you got no more say. You know, you're basically in their hands. But there's a lot more that, that should be done before then that isn't being done because the presumption is, well, the police will take care of everything. So we have to ask ourselves, how have we gotten into this area of confusion? And what do we have to do to get out of it? Well, I would say that in my whole civilian career as a security practitioner, we've been in this area of confusion. We haven't done anything effectively to get out of it. But why do we have the problems with handing off, you know, understanding the point of handoff from police to security or security to police? It's because I think and we've talked about we talked about this, I think, not in our last podcast, but the podcast prior to that, where we talked about the elements of an effective security program. There's two elements that are often missing. And one of them is mission. Why does security exist? What is their role? 
I'm amazed how many times I'll look at a program, get called by a client to evaluate a program. And the first question I'll ask is, what is the purpose of the security program? What is its mission statement? And I'll be returned with a blank stare, not yeah. really understanding <laughs> what I'm talking about. And then I go and I meet with the security team and I say, why are you guys here? And I am just blown away with the things that I hear from the guards. We're here to enforce the law. We're here to protect the citizens. We're here to stop terrorism or whatever the case may be. And what that means is that people don't know why security exists. So if you don't know where you're going, you can't get there. And then the other thing, which is the problem, and this is a problem more for security than police, but it exists in policing also, especially at the operational level, at the field level, is a lack of oversight. You, you know, if someone, at least, looking at it from the security point of view, if you don't have a subject matter expert, which is providing oversight of the program, then you have the Wild West. And when you have the Wild West, bad things happen. Years ago, Cadillac Fairview, uh, and I'll mention your name because it's a good story, but they realized that, you know, there's got to be a better way to do security than we're doing it because we're ending up maybe being sued more often than we need to be, or we're getting involved in questionable arrests or it ends up on YouTube when it shows a security guard doing something that doesn't look very nice, and that's bad uh, for brand reputation. And they revisited their whole approach, and you would know better than me, but they revisited their whole approach. They concentrated on training. They changed policies. They discouraged arrest. And the net effect has been that their program has blossomed, and the brand and reputation, the amount of incidents that they're involved in that can go south and hurt the brand, the numbers don't occur the way they yeah. used to because they, uh, they invested in the proper oversight and training and education. And that's what's missing in far too many cases. And that's where you have the confusion. And that's why, by the way, police officers, some of them anyways, don't want to work with security because they see them as a bunch of loose cannons. And that's why you have some really effective security programs, and I know you told the story, and I've had a similar story, where our security guards in one of the buildings I managed, and I know you told a story of a very big building you managed, did everything right, called the police, only for the police to screw up or maybe mishandle the person that was uh, the subject. Yep. And I recall, because I had oversight, to tell my security team, when the person is in our lawful custody, in our building, the fact that someone has a uniform that says police doesn't absolve you of your responsibility to treat that person with respect, dignity, and keep them safe. Yeah. If the police officer isn't doing his or her job, we're going to point that out to them. And we're not going to be uh, intimidated by the fact that their shoulder flash says police and ours says security. But that, that only comes from that confidence of knowing that we are trained and what we're, we know what we're doing and we know what our parameters are. That, unfortunately, is an exception rather than a rule. Yes. It exists with a lot of fine companies, but that's really the tip of the iceberg. Nope. <laughs> Sorry, my pacemaker was going off. <laughs> I'll pick it up on that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, it's rare and too far few between. Is that the word? That the security guard, the security manager more in particular, never mind the guard. It's the, it's the management that needs yes. to stand up. And, and hold people accountable and defend them when they do the right thing. Just thinking about some of the examples, what we're trying to get to here. The homeless issue is yeah. probably one that happens all the time. Um, and it's a, it's a, I think it's a good example of what we're trying to 
to illustrate to our listeners and, and to the business owners because nobody wants the homeless guy in front of their business, right? They smell, they have mental issues a lot of the times, so, you know, whatever it is that doesn't appeal to the business. Obviously. And, and they're, they're offensive. Yeah. I say that in air quotes to some of the tenants. Yeah, absolutely. And some of them. Tenants, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm saying that tongue in cheek because that really annoys the hell out of me, but that's the reality. Yeah. Well, and, and they can, some of them have been very aggressive, right? And they yeah. can be, well, yeah. they can be pretty yeah. violent. So it's not an, an, it's not a moot point, but all too often the approach was, and certainly probably still is in most properties, although I know I've tried to change it uh, with mixed success. You know, the approach has always been, well, call the police and they'll get rid of this guy. You're dealing with a guy who has mental issues, issues, right? Mental health issues. It's not a police matter. And we know that this has been in the press all over the place, certainly since uh, with COVID around now, mental health is, is on everybody's radar. But it was always there. It was always a problem. But it's not a police problem. And so the pressure from management was always, well, call the police. And then you would call the police, and sure enough, they would either leave him there, walk him off the property, and he'd be back 30 seconds later, or they'd take him away for the night, and he'd be back the next morning. So it's not a solution. And so what I'm getting at is it gets back to that continuum of responsibility and who needs to own it. That's not a police issue to own. And yet the client, the property manager, was insistent that that's, that that's where it lay. And finally, I started getting some traction with some forward-thinking property managers, with some property managers that had some vision and we're willing to try other things, we started reaching out to other resources, social services. There's groups in Toronto that are, are committed to going around and trying to give these people the help that they need, the assistance they need, get them off your property, and get them some help. And you're actually resolving the issue to a certain, or at least you have a chance of resolving the issue. The the fallback position has all too often been, call the police, it's a police problem. It's not, well, it's a security problem. And, and listen, and it goes to what I say, oversight. And clearly, you know, you're a very seasoned and focused leader. And I know that uh, when you were in your other life, you ran your program very well. You were aware of what was happening. You were aware of your strengths and weaknesses. You tried to maintain the strengths and address the weaknesses. It comes to oversight. Uh, in your example with the mental health crisis and how it affects some security programs it, it is right on because you took responsibility. You said this is a complex problem. You said that we can't arrest our way out of this problem. So you found the solution. That's what we need to do. We need effective oversight so we don't blur the boundaries. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had the same example of the, uh, the same type of problems at some of the buildings that we manage. And I had some buildings where the security officers, because of a lack of proper training, thought they were police. So they thought. Yeah. And they would strong arm these guys. And quite honestly, they did a terrible job because if they truly were police, they would realize no crime was committed. Therefore, there's nothing we can do. So I think proper oversight, focus, uh, you know, in terms of program mission, unless you have that, you are, you're doomed to fail. There's no way you can succeed. And the problem is only compounded in that there is, if you look at the city of Toronto, there is only one police force, but there are dozens and dozens or hundreds of different security companies. Yeah. There are dozens and dozens or hundreds of different policies and procedures, and there is no czar of security. So it really depends on what building you're in. It's almost like I saw something on crime the other day about the world's most dangerous neighborhoods. These are crime-infested neighborhoods that you'd take your life to go in there. And each one was controlled by a, 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 cartel. a, 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 it was a fight of a cartel. <laughs> it, that's sort of what the security yep. situation is. It's a cartel. 
you can have one building which is incredible, and we we know in the financial district there's examples. And next door is crazy. And you know, I I remember seeing bad guys or street people scratching their heads, saying, "All oh, these folks are crazy next door in that building." They tackle me and they put me in handcuffs and everything like that. And you guys uh, ask me to leave and you refer me to a social worker. Listen, I'm not saying that we were right and they're wrong. But what I'm saying is that's the challenge because there is no conformity and consistency, certainly on the security side. So it takes proper oversight, leadership, and it takes the security leaders to be part of different associations that exist in this city. So that, you know, you and I were very active in PathCom, we were very active in the commercial real estate security leadership group. And what we would do, and, and the CRE is a great example, the commercial real estate security leadership group. It was the senior leaders of Cadillac, Fairview, Brookfield, Oxford, Ivano Cambridge, GWL Realty Advisors. And what we would do is we were sort of like a cartel ourselves. We would meet in a stealth way and we talk about the issues that were occurring. And we would try and say, okay, can we get agreement how best to do it? And we created a force multiplier effect because now, especially this started in Toronto's financial district, all the major players were implementing the same policies mm -hmm. because the people with oversight were smart enough to get together and say, I can't do this differently than my neighbor. What can we agree on? What's the common ground? And only by having that type of leadership and oversight can we make the changes necessary and clear up the confusion that exists with the continuum of where security ends and police starts or vice versa? That ties in nicely to the discussions we had last uh, last podcast regarding the importance of partnership. That you know, and and to this discussion, the police were willing. Then they had the leadership and vision to want to partner and work together along that continuum and and, and start to identify who and what was responsible along along the lines of responsibility. G20 was a perfect example of how those communities came together to plan an integrated strategy on mitigating the, the risk of violence that we saw that, uh, that, that weekend. My question then is this, who spearheads that conversation? I know we've, we've gone down this topic so many times, it always comes back to who you've got in charge. But is there a role for maybe, I'm thinking like government to step in and force some kind of framework around the private sector security to bring them up to a certain level? Is there a role for them to do that? Or is it more on, on the clients to, to develop that position? Or is it the industry? I know you're going to say no to that one, but I have to say it because we're covering all parties. Is it on the industry, the security providers themselves? No, uh, you know, we know, no, I know, no. I know. I find that hard to believe that you said no. <laughs> like how do you how do you see that continuum being brought to the next level, that higher level? Well, you know, I'm a little bit of a libertarian in the sense that you know, if we use a COVID example, I can do the right thing. I could practice social distancing. I could uh, wear a mask. You know, I could wash my hands, and I, I and I can make a difference. Or I can have government do it. Give me an eight hundred dollar ticket. Put me in a quarantine center. The same effect. But government comes with a big hammer or a stick. I'm a big proponent that it's incumbent on business and senior seasoned and senior security leaders to come together and do it. It's in their interest. You know, one of the founding ethos of the commercial real estate security leadership group was that we all had egos. We were all type A type personalities. And I remember I, for one, would tell everyone that my assets were better protected than yours. 
Yeah. And I would that was before you got visibility to everybody else. That's crying. before you got visibility to everybody. <laughs> and, and, and that's true. It wasn't accompanying. In most cases, though, it reaffirmed that mine was better. But I came to the conclusion that as good as my buildings may have been, no building is an island. And if I have absolutely no crime in my building, which is an impossibility, and no disorder in my building, but you do, and you're next door to me, and you're connected by the path, it's like the virus. It's all around us. It's community yeah. spread. So it's incumbent on us, like we did with the CRE. We did it on our own, you know. Yeah. Government didn't come to us. Our leaders didn't come to us. We took ownership, but we said, listen, I'm only as strong as my neighbor. And the philosophy was simple. If my building is doing it right, your building is doing it right, and the guy next to it is doing it right, okay, we push that perimeter out, further out now, and it becomes someone else's problem. Unlike the chief of police of Toronto, I'm not responsible to keep the city safe. I'm responsible to keep my assets safe, my building safe. And if my neighbor's building is safe next door to me, it makes it easier for me to fulfill my job. So really, I just want to sweep the garbage elsewhere, okay, to someone else's problem. And I think that's the fundamental difference, by the way, of policing and security. I'm like a garbage man or I'm like the cleaner. I just want to move it away from the asset I'm responsible mm -hmm. for, and you want to do it from your assets and so on and so on, so we get it out of the financial district, okay? The police, though, have to deal with it citywide. So in some, from some points of view, our job is easier. Yeah. It really is. So we, to answer your question, I sincerely believe it has to be driven by us in the private sector, but that can only happen when you have the right people in place. And I'll tell you, I'm not convinced that we have that critical mass in place to make a difference. It ebbs and flows, you know. There's yep. periods of time where there's strong leaders and there's cohesiveness in the thinking. And then there comes times where you reinvent yourself and, and, and you forget all the things that you've accomplished and you start all over. I think just like Toronto Police reinventing themselves, I think security in Toronto is going through that phase right now, which is regrettable because we have not continued to build on the foundation. But I also think there's an absence of leaders yep. on the horizon that are focused on the bigger picture. And, and I'm glad you said that because uh, I, I actually just listened to uh, another, uh, basically an educational group. Uh, once a week they have a topic. And, and sure enough, this week they had um, leadership insecurity and has it failed us. And it's interesting because it does tie into this because you just said you need the right people. And I agree. We don't have the right people. And in fact, the industry has itself to blame. We haven't done a good enough job of promoting what we do to other businesses. We do a great job of saying how great we are to ourselves, right? So. We're a great security company. You'll say in the security industry to a security provider, they don't give a rat's ass about you. If you're doing a great job, you got to tell the electricians, you got to tell the politicians, you got to tell the property managers, you got to tell the retail owners. But we've been so self-absorbed when the industry needs to be communicating outward, and it's been detrimental to our progression. But I, I, I think it's an excellent point. I, I think what you're saying, and I agree, I, I think that's part of the fundamental problem, is we're so insecure as an industry, as a security leadership industry, if you will, that we, we need, I need to hear good things from my peers that appreciate it, when the reality is, how am I making that electrician's life better? How am I making the asset yeah. manager's life better? Because I exist to serve them. Exactly. That's my internal or external client. 
And I think yeah. that's where the big failure is. And I know we've talked about this so many times. We've almost come to fisticuffs over this. But I've always maintained it's a failure of leadership and uh, security leadership. And you've always said, but you need senior level uh, C-suite people to yeah. listen. And you're right. You know what? You can't have a one-way conversation. But it's up to a visionary leader to create that environment. They're not going to do it. They're yeah. not. It has to be us, and that's why we have to raise the bar. You know, I'm just so amazed and frustrated how many times I'll talk with a potential client or an actual client that can't understand why they're having problems with their security program. And they'll tell me they just spent $200,000 on a camera system. Or they'll tell me that they just uh, had an RP and they've got a great uh, provider providing security right now, but they're still not happy. Yeah. It's simply because they don't know what they're, where they're going. They don't know what the threat or risks are. They don't know what are the touch points that are going to make that electrician or asset manager or tenant on the 14th floor happy, or maybe not happy, but how it's going to impact in a meaningful way their life. I mean, the police are quite simple, you know. If, if, if cars are getting broken into, if people are getting assaulted, my life is adversely impacted. Well, security has the same effect on people's lives, but we do a terrible job marketing ourselves. I blame the leadership. I've been, as you know, part of some pretty high-ranking um, think tanks in the country. And and you listen to them talk and what they present. And, you know, there's some good people. I, I'm going to put that caveat out there. Obviously, there's some guys really trying to do the right thing really smart and trying their best to take us to the next level. But then there's so many clowns out there who put on this facade. They talk about how great they are and that they're intertwined with the C-suite. You know, nine times out of ten, when you've scratched the surface with those guys over a beer, they'll tell you, oh, that's all bullshit. Nobody's actually listening to them, but they're ignored from their company. So they can basically do whatever they want, as long as it falls within the budgetary constraints that the companies put on them. They could do whatever they want. And that's the reality for most of them. But they won't admit it. And it's a detriment to the business because it, that's how we're viewed as, it as is. the outsiders. It, it is. But you know what? A, a, a real visionary leader, in my opinion, has to be mission focused, mission focused above everything else. So it means doing the right thing, even if doing the right thing is going to get you in trouble. Yeah. And, and, and if you look right now, actually, with the impeachment south of the border, okay, there's two schools of thought, as I see it. There's what is your responsibility if you're a member of Congress or Senate in respect to your duty or oath to the Constitution and what the American people need versus your responsibility or duty to the party? A lot of the people with the private vote, what I read, a lot of the Republican senators think what the president did was wrong. I would like to censure him. But they're scared of losing their jobs, so they vote not to impeach. That's probably how it's going to come out. Well, it's no different with security leaders, or any type of leader for that matter. I mean, listen, I've had over my career probably about four or five jobs, okay? So I'm probably on an eight-year, ten-year trajectory per job. Some of those jobs I lost only because I was too pig-headed in the sense that I did what I believed was the right thing to do, even though my employer didn't understand or want me to do it. But it didn't matter because as I saw it, I was hired to protect the company, protect it from themselves if I had to, but to manage risk. I was that professional. And that takes some courage. And I'm not saying I'm a courageous guy, courageous guy, because I did what I had to do to survive. Yeah. Mortgage to pay. I had yeah, kids to go through school. I've been older and wiser now. 
And I just don't care. I either bring value and we're aligned in terms of purpose and mission, or we're not. And if we're not, tell me that I'm not bringing value and I'll leave. And by the way, I, you know, I have age on my side. You know, I've been working for 40 years. I'm pretty confident. I'm not insecure the way I used to be. So I'm able to do a job. I think it's hard for managers that are up for up and coming, especially because they don't want to lose their job. But sometimes you have to put it online to bring real value. And I would yeah. su- uh, suggest that more often than not, if you conduct yourself like that, you may piss people off but they'll respect you at the end and they're going to keep you because they know you're taking care of business. That's and, the problem. And, and and we've done a terrible job of uh, succession planning, as we've talked about before as well. There's no mentoring program. There's no, you know, so I know ACES has something like that, but companies have done a terrible job in general doing it. Security is even worse, uh, which doesn't help those young guys that could develop into great leaders one day, but they just don't have the guidance and mentoring to, to get them there. So, I'm just keeping tabs on time as usual because you don't. You can ramble all night. <laughs> but I, Be, Because I have knowledge that I want to impart. I have listeners that wait a week. Whether me. they want to hear you or not. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, I'm going to close it off uh, by summarizing to those who have listened, uh, the business people in particular, obviously, that you really need to understand where your uh, where your scope is, like what you're responsible for. It's not the police's business to be taking care of your business. They've got their mandate, and most of it revolves around criminal activity. It's not about civil-related stuff, you know, people who are loitering or people you don't want on your property because for whatever reason they, they're not shopping or they're not being uh, cooperative. That's your problem. It's not a police problem. And calling on the police consistently, certainly, to do those types of things We'll piss them off eventually, <laughs> and it'll be reflected in the service. Because I know I used to carry a badge, and I knew the tenants or the calls that I would get to one retailer uh, were handled with a certain amount of professionalism and respect. And so I hustled my ass to get there because I knew that when I got there, it was going to be a legitimate police issue. And then there were other retailers where I knew, oh, not this idiot again. That's yeah. a waste of time. And so you dealt with it in that manner, um, and that that will be reflected in the service you get. So. I caution you against downloading everything on the police. I would encourage you to review your security manager, your your leadership, your program, your mandate, and make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to do. Because if you think you're going to call 911 and to resolve all your issues, you better think again. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Brian for your closing comments. Well, no, you know, I can't add anything to other than what you said, because I think uh, you're entirely right. Uncharacteristically, I agree with you. I can only think that uh, we've been friends now for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, and uh, we've been working closely together much of that time, that finally it's paying off, and it's rubbing off, and you're learning. So uh, I'm proud to see my students uh, prospering. Uh, Is that a bottle of scotch I see beside you? Is that what's going on? Are you drunk already? (laughs) Not yet, but soon. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm just wondering, uh, I've got nothing to add to that, but can we sort of talk about our next podcast and sure, our absolutely. guest? You yes, want to I'm say excited about that. Or, well, yeah. I'll let you do the introductions because you've uh, organized it and uh, I'm excited about it. Well, yeah, our next podcast is, we're, we're sort of falling into a routine where we have a guest and then we have a podcast with ourselves and then we session. have another guest. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> session. But uh, a retired superintendent, uh, Toronto Police Superintendent Bill Needles who ran the emergency management section of Toronto Police, everything from counterterrorism 
to protest to the Public Order Unit of Rights. Bill has a uh, illustrious 40-plus year career with Toronto Police. He is acknowledged as, as one of the top emergency management experts in Canada, if not North America. Has an incredible track record being involved in some of the biggest events that have happened over the last 40 years in the city. Bill's going to be our guest uh, next uh, session, next week for an hour, and it ought to be a fantastic uh, session because uh, Superintendent Needles is a great guy. He's a smart guy, and he has trouble controlling his filter. So it could be interesting. <laughs> and he likes me better than you. <laughs> he likes you. But most people do. That's something I've had to come to live, learn to live with. You have to smile more often. Yeah, I, yeah, I wish I could. All right. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think it's going to be a great interview. Uh, Bill's a great guy. He tells it like it is. And now that he doesn't carry the badge anymore, he's probably, you know, frighteningly free of those restraints, which might be a problem. But that's why I edit this stuff before we bring it to air. So, so with that, good chat today. Uh, got the blood flowing and I'm looking forward to our next podcast. Till then, uh, see you later. Bye everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Luke. It's always fun. That concludes this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and will join us in a couple of weeks for our latest episode. Please remember to like and follow us on our sponsor's webpage, brianclayman.com, where you can leave us your comments and suggest topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening and don't forget to protect your assets.